I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blumke. And you're listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. You can now listen to all of our episodes and see show notes at FriendlyAtheistPodcast.com. Ali A. Rizvi is a Pakistani-Canadian writer, physician, and musician who resides in Toronto. He's the author of a new book called The Atheist Muslim. Ali lived in Libya, Saudi Arabia, and Pakistan as part of a progressive Muslim family before he moved permanently to Canada in his 20s. He's a trained physician and a vocal advocate for secularism, science, and reform, particularly in the Muslim community. Ali, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So let's let's get this out of the way. Let's get uh, talk about the title of the book, The Atheist Muslim. Uh, you're obviously an atheist, but do you still consider yourself a Muslim? Well, I mean, the title is a little bit, uh, it's partly tongue-in-cheek, but only partly. Um, it's really a play on the book. It really explores the idea of uh, the Islamic ideology and to what extent it's incorporated into the Muslim identity. So it's really an ideology slash identity uh, play, which I think is um, a lot more pronounced in the Muslim world in general, uh, because religion is a much bigger part of uh, people's lives, um, even in their governments and their public affairs, um, their political affairs and so on. Um, So it really is a a hit at that. And once you read the book, um, it makes sense why the title is uh, the way it is. Um, I... Don't identify. I mean, just doctrinally. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously an atheist. I, I I'm not a fan of any religion or any kind of dogma of any type. Um, but uh, some of the there's some sort of universal cultural elements of uh, uh, well, I guess Muslim culture, if you want to call it that. Even though there's many different kinds of Muslim cultures uh, that I still partake in. So we, uh, I, I still enjoy the feasts of Ramadan. I still celebrate Eid with my family. Um, I, it's, it's sort of like, I think, what Richard Dawkins once talked about being a cultural Christian, how he still goes to church on uh, Christmas and sings Christmas carols and uh, things like that. So um, it, it is, uh, I, I would say, I guess I'm a cultural Muslim, you know, because uh, a lot of my family and extended family and many of my friends are um, still involved in the whole Muslim experience. And I grew up with them. I grew up with those traditions. I grew up with those memories and that childhood uh, so uh, there is an element of that. But yes, overall, I'm an atheist. I think that's an interesting take and something a lot of people can relate for relate to. I know in my family, I'm Catholic three generations deep, but my parents didn't really practice. I don't practice. If I had kids, they wouldn't practice. But like those traditions still stand. We still do stuff for Easter. I, and I think that's true, I would argue, over almost all religions. Yeah, a lot of people kind of pick and choose these days. Like, I like some of the cultural, the traditions I grew Mm -hmm. up with, even if I don't buy into the God stuff. And I wonder if that's going to be, even if religion does die out more to some extent as it's been sort of reduced, you know, the pattern has been that's been been reduced. I wonder if 200 years from now, are people still going to be celebrating those sort of kind of a relic from their past. Yeah. Are they going to be celebrating Ramadan? Are they going to be celebrating Easter? Ali, have you met people mm-hmm. who are doing what you're doing, which is to say, because I've heard of cultural Catholics. I've heard mm-hmm. of the cultural Christians. Cultural yeah. Jews. I have, yeah, cultural Jews, for sure. I have not really heard much about cultural Muslims, and I wonder if that's a common thing among people you know. I didn't think it was um, for, until about seven or eight years ago. I thought I was the only one. 
Uh, and then uh, the more I started talking about it, the more I realized that I'm not the only one. There were a lot of other people who also thought they were the only ones. So I would uh, typically go to, you know, to friends, family, parents, friends, uh, people's like sort of social gatherings or even religious, like the, the Shia Muharram ritual of mourning, which is actually a religious uh, festival um, of mourning. You know, we would go to these gatherings and I would, you know, maybe uh, talk about something, some something in the news about uh, whatever it was about secularism and so on. And there would always be one or two people that would just point at me and their eyes would lighten up. And I'd be like, yeah, you know, you're right. <laughs> and then they would ask me for my uh, contact information. They'd get in touch later. They're like, you know, this is exactly how I thought. Um, one of the reasons you don't really hear about it um, is that, you know, by the time, the only time you really hear about it is when you see the news that someone's been hacked to death in Bangladesh or, um, you know, someone's being flogged in jail in Riyadh. Um, but so it, it, it's understandable why you won't hear a lot of people saying it. But I have in the last eight years, and one of the reasons I wrote this book is I've corresponded with thousands. And I'm not even exaggerating. And if you look at my inbox, thousands of people in, in Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Malaysia, um, Pakistan, um, Indonesia, all of these, you name it. Just uh, there, are, there are people there uh, that write to me. Uh, they're asking me, you know, when my book's coming. Some of them are actually prominent journalists. Uh, some of them are politicians. So I, I've been actually stunned at um, just the kind of response I got when I started writing about this. Um, you know, and I, I write for the Huffington Post. Um, and just, just, just a few articles here and there. And they said they actually related to it uh, because they do have to live with their families. They love their families. Uh, they, all of the activities and everything they enjoy with their families, they, you know, they, they take part in them. But at the same time, uh, they are just sick of the ideology uh, sort of creeping into everything. You know, they, they, it's, it's almost like you know, they wish that they could do everything uh, with their families and live the lives that they currently live but without that whole, that big, you know, the cloud of the ideology hanging over them. Um, and the ideology has obviously become um, more of an issue in recent years. You know, there's, I mean, what ISIS is doing, what Al-Qaeda has done, these are all things that are affecting the Taliban in Pakistan, especially um, where, where I'm from and where, where my relatives and, you know, my friends actually figure into that situation a lot more. Uh, they're tired of it. Uh, they're just tired of not being able to live their lives. And uh, even a lot of the Muslim things that they do, uh, like the, the night before Eid, for instance, uh, in Lahore in Pakistan, the city that I'm from, you know, people go out, uh, you know, women and men go out together. Uh, nobody's really wearing the hijab. You know, they'll put on, uh, they'll get jewelry. Uh, they'll get henna tattoos. Uh, you get to get things like that done. And this is part of a Muslim celebration, Eid. And, the Taliban just don't think that's right. So they even prevent them from doing things that they think are part of their religion. So it's, it's, a, very, it's a very complicated situation. I understand like in places where, you know, we've been living in the West and uh, where secularism has been around for a very long time. So it's really hard to imagine the extent of the intertwinement, I guess, if that's a word, um, of, you know, Islam with the Muslim experience. Uh, and it, it, I know all of this sounds really surreal in a way, uh, but it's a reality. And it's something that uh, a lot of people really related to. And I, I've been uh, you know, pleasantly surprised by how many people have written to me and you know, just talked 
to me about this and, you know, related to this, that just the phrase, the atheist Muslim, which I, again, initially, well, the story is initially, I, I named it that because I was uh, speaking to a friend of mine who identifies as feminist Muslim. And uh, I asked her about the verses in the Quran that are sort of, you know, misogynistic, wife beating and, and so on. And uh, she said, uh, she admitted openly to cherry pickings, like there's some things that are beyond my understanding. I uh, don't believe in that stuff, but I do believe in Islam, and I and I'm a feminist. Uh, so I, you know, I and I've seen LGBT Muslims, you know, a lot of other people who have uh, who are living experiences that would seem contradictory to the faith, because faith explicitly does not allow them. Uh, so I was just wondering, I'm like, we're going to cherry pick, you know, can I cherry pick all the way to non-belief? Huh. You know, I'll just keep, I'll keep Ramadan, I'll keep the uh, the Eid celebrations, uh, I'll keep, you know, and what I'd like to say is I'll keep the tax-exempt status, keep all of that, but <laughs> just get rid of the get rid of the belief. So it kind of started out that way, but um, as I started writing it and as, as I started corresponding with more uh, of these people, um, I realized that there is a much deeper and more consequential meaning to the term uh, that will make sense once uh, you read the book. So you're open about your atheism. What's your family and extended family's reaction uh, about your atheism? You know, I used to annoy them a long time ago. Uh, when I used to talk about I guess uh, when, you know, there, there wasn't really, I, 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 before all of this stuff sort of became mainstream, it wasn't very accepted. Uh, so I used to talk about it, and they used to tell me, like, you know, don't say anything. You look at what happened to Salman Rushdie. Look at, you know, there's a lot of crazy people out there. And they would also disagree with me. Uh, but I think uh, after you know, the more recent years, as you know, terrorism has become a really big deal, as you know, the, the, everything's more exposed. Like, you know, when I was younger, uh, we, the Quran was in book print form, and it was on the highest place in our house, which was on top of a tall bookshelf. Uh, you had to do wudu, which is a, a ritual of washing and to, to purify yourself before you even touched it. Uh, it was all in Arabic, so none of us understood it. Uh, but we, you know, we revered it, we respected it. So we sort of kind of went by what our elders elders told us in terms of you know what the content is and what's in it. But today, now you know, with the internet, when um, uh, you know, if someone, if you watch on TV, someone's beheading, uh, you know, an infidel, and they're quoting, you know, Surah nine verses twenty nine and thirty, uh, while they do it, you can actually go and Google it in any language you want to. You can, you know, and you can immediately see what the content is, and you can match it up. So everything's more exposed. People are more aware of the reality of it, and even the ones who are uh, defend it to some extent. Um, they're aware that there is an issue. They're aware that there's a problem and there's a disconnect. So I think uh, because of that, I've, I've actually gotten a much more, I wouldn't say support, but I've, uh, but understanding. And I, I guess there's a, uh, with my family, especially there's, there is a mutual respect for what I do. I understand their experience and why, why they feel the way they do. Um, they understand mine and we have a great relationship. So They've been very supportive. Unfortunately, I mean, I know that that's not the case for the majority of people. I mean, I, I write in my book about a lot of uh, about ex-Muslims. There's a chapter, uh, third chapter is called Letting Go. Uh, and that's all about the ex-Muslim experience. And many of the ex-Muslims that I've talked to who have been disowned by their families, um, who, uh, you know, have been completely just outcast 
and uh, some of them, there's a there's a case of um, one of them who actually committed suicide uh, just a few years ago. So I, I go into his story as well, and he's someone that we all knew. So there there are uh, people who have really harrowing experiences because of this. It's a very very difficult situation for them. Um, but uh, fortunately, uh, I've been uh, very lucky in having a, a supportive family. So uh, when you were writing this book, what was your intended audience? Were you writing to uh, Muslims? Were you writing to ex-Muslims? Were you writing to just sort of somebody on the street who might not have a, hu- a, a large and broad understanding of Islam? Uh, my main, like to be honest, my main uh, um, target, like in terms of who I wanted to speak to, were the people who I was corresponding with. And, and they're mainly sort of, young closeted people in uh, uh, the Muslim world, a lot of them. I, I've, I've written it in a way that I think it will be very educational and illuminating to uh, the people living in the West, you know, whether they're Muslim or not. Uh, but this really is uh, speaking to a lot of young people who are growing up um, in the modern world, in, uh, in their countries, and also over here in, in the West, in Muslim families, you know, who, uh, who, who feel that way or who feel that they're kind of caught between this uh, traditional, um, you know, the, the, the religion, the traditions of the religion on one end and, and the um, and just trying to be part of the modern world and the other. And they're trying to reconcile that whole idea of, the, you know, are they, they're in Islam, but they're also part of the modern world and how they didn't come together. It's a, it's a really huge struggle for, for many of them. And it's something that they're all thinking about a lot. And I, I think that, uh, one of the most important things in this sense is to, and a lot of them don't realize it, but almost every time when I bring it up with them, they 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 see it, is um, learning to differentiate between Islamic ideology, which is a belief system, uh, and uh, the Muslim identity, which is really more human. It's it's more about people. So, you know, one of the things I say over and over again is human beings have rights uh, and are entitled to respect. Uh, but books, beliefs, and religions don't and aren't. Um, and to make that distinction, I think, is really, really important. Um, and I think as we, with time, more and more young people are, are able to do it. Uh, another thing that's kind of interesting is that I have, uh, I, again, I write about this in the book, is that, you know, I had a cousin and his wife that were visiting us, and we were talking about the book. This is around the time I'd started writing it. And, uh, you know, we were up until 4 in the morning, um, just uh, discussing it, arguing it. They're like, you know, why do you have to write it? What's the point? And so on. Whose mind are you going to change? You know, people are setting their mind. Their beliefs are really strong. Um, and they had a, their 17-year-old nephew who was kind of sitting there, you know, silently listening. And uh, the next morning, I, I got an email from them, from him. And, uh, you know, he, he, was, he was saying, you know, he's like, you know, Ali, everyone at school, you know, we all read what you write. And we follow you. Please don't listen to anybody. Keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> um, and that, to me, and that's not just a one-off situation. This is something that has happened uh, several times. So, you know, people like him, like that kid, is uh, those are the people that I have in mind. Because I remember when I was that age, I, I was that's kind of what got me to here. And if I had heard a voice, if I knew that there was somebody else who had kind of thought this through and who had... Um, you know, and actually put some substance um, and and some substance behind it, then I would have been a lot more encouraged to pursue that sort of that thought. 
Let me ask you um, a clearly a simple question. What mm-hmm. is, I mean, this is something I see people arguing, debating left and right. Is there something unique about Islam that we see all the violence, terrorism done in the name of Islam today? Because, I mean, the Quran is not more or less violent than, say, the Holy Bible. And yet we don't see mm-hmm. these issues with Christians today. So what's the issue? Is it the Quran? Is it the holy text? Is the problem that ISIS is following the Quran very closely? Or is it that they're just using the Quran to rationalize whatever it is they were going to do for other reasons? Well, I mean, I, I actually don't think there's much of a difference. I mean, the, the, it's it's kind of interesting to me that, I, well, first of all, to answer your question, the very you know, simple question, simple answer is uh, that um, I think the main difference between um, Islam and uh, the other Abrahamic religions, at least, is uh, this idea of scriptural inerrancy. Uh, so this is something that, you know, if you look at Judaism, um, uh, the Torah was supposed to have been revealed to Moses uh, at Mount Sinai in the tabernacle. It was supposed to be the literal word of God, and it was thought to be that way um, for many generations. Um, and, you know, it has changed over the years and you know we, it would take a long time to go into the history of it but you know i mean most recently it was the um the reform judaism movement the majority of or a plurality of uh american jews are reform jews about 35 percent and they don't look at it as a divinely written text anymore so that's something that uh, where islam is very unique so if, if the people who believe that the bible the christians in the u.s who believe that the Bible is the literal word of God are about 30%. Um, with Muslims, um, an overwhelming majority of them actually believe that the Quran is the literal word of God. Um, so they do have to follow it a lot more closely. And if you just make that transition from, you know, divinely re- revealed literal word of God to, say, divinely inspired, that suddenly gives you a lot more latitude, a lot of interpretive potential. And this is something that we only talk about when it comes to religion. It's always really interesting. I mean, when I when I hear people like Reza Aslan or you know some of the uh, sort of more liberal interpreters of the Quran, especially here in the West, you know, that their worst nightmare ever, like just whatever you do, whatever you do, do not read the Quran literally. Like, do, do whatever you can, just do not read those words the way that they're written. You know, in fact, you know, they'll tell you, like, just put down the Quran and listen to me. Forget about the actual words of God and, you know, what he wrote, what you believe he wrote, what I believe he wrote. But just listen to my human interpretation of it and, and go with that. So it, it's, that's not a very convincing message because, you know, people, uh, the, the, you know, ISIS and Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, some of these very, and I think that they're just very, very religious people, fanatically religious people. Uh, they don't. Um, they're not quoting, you know, some professor at Al Azhar University or anybody. They're quoting the Quran, they're quoting the Hadith, and when they do, we're all able to look up what they're quoting and see that it's it's there. So, um, you know, this is a it's it's a big disconnect, and I think that scriptural inerrancy is really uh, the biggest difference between uh, Islam and the other religions at this point. I think it's a chronological thing. I mean, so it's a historical. I mean, we we know. Certainly, when uh, Christianity went through this phase, uh, you know, we know that everybody's had their sort of violent, bloody years. And secularism 
and you know the Enlightenment and secularism have uh, come and sort of undone that and weakened them and sort of in a way you know uh, gotten rid of, <clears throat> gotten rid of some of those issues. But uh, with Islam, it hasn't happened yet. And but I but it is happening. I can't stop thinking about what you said with the liberal Muslims saying, don't read the Quran, listen to me. And it makes me just because I, I feel like I hear that 50-50. I hear like uh, priests and pastors saying like, you know, don't read it literally. Let me it kind of extol the virtues of it for you versus people who say it doesn't matter what anybody says. You know, read the Bible, uh, read the Quran. Uh, it's there. I'm and sorry, I, can you say that again? Oh, sorry. Uh, just talking about how there are some uh, church leaders um, or mosque leaders who – will say, read the text, that's the word of God, that's what you need to follow, versus listen to me, and it's more of a cult of personality almost at that point. And the conduit of religious information for you. Right. So yeah. at, at what point are you just following your particular pastor as opposed to the Bible or, you know— Your imam over right. what the text says. Well, you know, we, we see this uh, all the time, don't we? I mean, you—, you... You hear someone come up and say, well, you know, the Islam, this is what Islam says, this is what the Quran says. And they'll be like, nope, there's this guy who's in this university, and he's a professor of this, and he's got this many degrees. And he actually says uh, that this word does not mean uh, swine. It means dog, so it's okay <laughs> to eat pepperoni. Or, you know, what? It, you know, the kind of—so there, there's um, a lot of these things. There's a lot of intellectual acrobatics, and— it's fascinating to see, like especially with in academia, um, I know the people who study it. I, a lot of times, I, I sit down with people who have, uh, you know, doctorates in this, and, and you know, I, I just ask them about, like, you know, for example, I guess, well, I don't want to get too granular, but just really quickly, the the verse about the wife beating, uh, the phrase "adrubuhuna," which is an Arabic verse that means beat them. And uh, they say, well, you know, it doesn't meet the, it doesn't mean beat them. It means, you know, strike a separation, or you know, they'll have all of these other things that it potentially means, which doesn't make sense in the verse. Um, so, and and then when you show them the Arabic and you understand, you know, how it actually works, sometimes you'll present them with the evidence, and uh, it'll be, it'll just end up in a deadlock. And there's loads of, I guess, scholars, um, so to speak, who disagree on these things, and they just. They just don't think that the other person is right, and it just depends on who you're going with. And people just like to cherry pick their verses mm-hmm. uh, in the scripture. They cherry pick their uh, their their conduit, so to speak. You know, whoever they're listening to. And uh, what's interesting to me about this is is that you know it, it kind of shows that you don't really need the religion in the first place because you know if you're there's this idea that you're getting your morality from religion, um, but you're really not. You're reading the scripture. You're looking at uh, you're looking at it through your own inherent morality that you already have, and certain things that are not sitting well with you, you're twisting them into something that is more palatable to you. So you're not really getting your morality from the book. You're actually using your inherent morality to interpret the book. Um, and you know why not cut out the middleman? Sure. Uh, so forgive me because I'm not as familiar with this, uh, the Quran as I am with the Bible in general. So I know even in over one translation of the Bible, it's internally uh, at, at odds with this itself constantly. Thou shalt not kill except for in these 17 instances. And by and that way people can read the Bible and really find whatever moral they want. Am I justified in killing this person? Am I never justified in killing and I think mm-hmm. that's kind of resulted in a lot of um, fracturing among 
among uh, Christians. Would you say the same is true in the Quran? Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that's why you have so many different sects. Right? You have so many different sects and factions. And you know, there's this idea, you know, you've got the, the, the Sunnis, who many Sunnis don't believe the Shia are true Muslims. Uh, because they are, they have a different interpretation. Maybe the Shia don't believe that uh, the um, or, or the Sunnis they don't believe the Ahmadis, which is a minority sect in, in Pakistan that's very persecuted in Pakistan, India. They don't believe that they're true Muslims, and the Ahmadis don't believe that ISIS or anybody that uses violence mm-hmm. are true Muslims. And uh, you know, eventually, when you look at who declares everybody and not a true Muslim, you end up with no Muslims at all. <laughs> so. Um, they, yeah, they all they all kind of um, try to find what they can, and uh, there's this, you know, and and that really is more um, something that you see among more moderate Muslims who are not very familiar with the scripture, and they kind of come across a verse here and there. Someone points it out to them that you know, there's, you know, there's this thing that's really violent uh, in your book, and they look at it and they ask around. They find a whole bunch of different. You know, a range of, and by range, I really mean a range. And one person says that the word means kill, and the other person says it means love. And uh, <laughs> it, it, I mean, it's polar opposites. It's not even a, I mean, the, the entire thing is, you know, when anything can mean anything, the whole thing becomes meaningless. And it's, uh, I, I feel like, I, I think that this is, it's just this trap that, that there, people are born with this, right? They're born into Muslim families. If you ask anybody why they're Muslim, 99% of the time or more, you know, apart from the tiny minority that are converts, uh, the, the vast majority are people who are born to Muslim families. And, and you don't, when you have an ideology and you have a belief system in all other realms of life, uh, you, you come to them by, you know, through exploration or you know, what, what you're exposed to. Uh, but with this, it really is an identity. They know that they're Muslims. They have a Muslim identity. Uh, it, it was the identity of their parents, you see, and then their parents were good people. And they know that, like, my parents were good people, so this cannot be a bad faith. Like, these people cannot be real Muslims because they're killing people. My parents were not like that. They're great people. My family, this is my identity. It's my heritage. And then, uh, you know, when they're faced with the ideology, they try to defend the ideology. But what they're really doing is they're they're defending the identity. That's why you criticize the, the ideology um, in any way, and they take it as a personal attack on their identity. And once you're able to, and I've noticed that when I sit down and I've talked to people, especially young people, um, even religious young people, and I kind of explain to them, like, you know, you set the stage for the conversation. So like, I know that, you know, you've got a Muslim heritage, Muslim identity, all of that. So do I. We're on the same page. You know, we we have a lot in common there. But you know, let's just talk about the ideas for a bit. You know, the stuff that you didn't really get on your own, the stuff that, you know, your your parents kind of taught you and you really only believe because, uh, you know, you because they, they told you to. You were kind of indoct- indoctrinated. But then now let's talk about that just on their, on its merit. Um, and I've, I found that they're a lot more receptive that way. And then this is why one of the things I say in the book is um, sometimes setting the stage for a conversation is just as important, if not more important, than the conversation itself. Let me ask you about some of the uh, criticisms we've had, we've seen. You brought his name up earlier. Someone like Reza Aslan, who always seems to provide cover uh, to Islam. He says Islam's not the problem. It's it's a variety of other factors. Um, and we also see it on a lot of college campuses, this sort of regressive left philosophy, whatever you want to call it. It seems like people are 
very sensitive about criticizing Islam because obviously Muslims in the United States, definitely maybe in Canada too, have it really rough. Uh, there's no doubting that and you don't want that to happen. But one of the byproducts of that is that people are very afraid to criticize Islam or that it's seen as, I don't know, cruel almost to, to go after Islam in the same way we go after Christianity and other mythologies. Where does someone like Reza Aslan go wrong? Because I, I know you've written about this in the past. Yeah, it's uh, I, I think that there is, uh, this is confusion, and I understand why there's confusion. Like, I, I think that he's confused. And um, I, here's my take on it. I, I think it's a matter of, well, let, let's put it this way. And I write about this in the book as well. Um, in countries where Muslims are a minority, Islam is an identity. And in countries where Muslims are a majority, Islam is a religion. So what you have is, for instance, um, the same hijab that a lot of Muslim women in the West as a minority will choose to wear as a symbol of their identity and their heritage um, is when you go to a Muslim-majority country, that same uh, garment is forced onto women by their governments, by their husbands, um, you know, by, by society. Overall, the same book over here that uh, people revere because it, it's, uh, it's, uh, um, it's, it's sacred to a minority of people here. And, you know, the liberal conscience is all about protecting the rights of minorities and uh, making sure that they don't get trampled on. So over here, we're, we're very sensitive to that. Uh, but that same book in a Muslim-majority country um, is part of the government's constitution in most cases, to some extent, um, in, in, mo in most of those cases, actually. And it's used to censor, used to oppress, used to kill um, uh, people who... And it's used to control them, um, you know, just en masse. Um, so there's, and then, and, and, you know, when you criticize in, you know, if, if you're liberal or you're a secularist and you're living in a Muslim majority country and you're trying to fight the system, the system that you're fighting is this whole, you know, theocratic, you know, Sharia, um, um, re religion based system that is, that is oppressing you. And when you're fighting it, that's over there. That's what liberals and secularists do. Uh, when you voice those same criticisms over here in the West, uh, to then what you're doing is you're victimizing a minority. It's like the minority of Muslims, and you're, and you're you're being bigoted against them, and you're being Islamophobic against them. So I, I think that it's uh, so you, you can see how this can get really confusing. All right. So this is why you know you have if Donald Trump says something uh, terrible about uh, about women or uh, you know about about anything. Donald um, Trump. Who? Really? You, you know you. Sorry. Nothing. <laughs> We're just being. We're jackasses to each other. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If he if he says something, you know, you're you're gonna we're gonna slam it. But the moment you take that exact same statement and you you find it in the Quran, then suddenly we've got to step back and treat it with respect. So, <laughs> so there is a, um, you know, it, it it is really confusing. I've uh, you know one of my friends, I think you probably know him, uh, Faisal Al Batar. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a refugee from Iraq, and you know he he was actually on the he's the founder of Global Secular Humanist Movement. Um, and which is on you know, on Facebook, it's got like three hundred thousand fans and so on. Um, and he was running from country to country, and he he actually lost a brother when his brother was murdered by Al Qaeda. He's from a Shia family in Iraq, um, and uh, he's an atheist. And he was over there. He was a, a a liberal activist, you know. And he came here, and suddenly, you know, people are calling him, you know, someone who is bigoted against Muslims. And it's just 
Uh, it's, it's a very, very strange thing, the exact same thing that we like, you know, we regard people like Raif Badawi or uh, the bloggers in Bangladesh and all of their writings. Uh, we regard them as, as heroes for free speech, but if we take their same writings and, you know, if they had been living here and doing them, they would be called, uh, you know, like, you know, why are you victimizing Muslims? Um, so, so it's, uh, there is a, I think that's where the confusion arises and it's easy to see why it happens. There is a very active ex-Muslim community uh, growing in North America uh, in the mm-hmm. various countries. What are they doing right? What are they doing wrong? And like, what should their next big steps be? Uh, that's a good question. You know, you know what's uh, interesting is I, like I know them, and I think they're great people. I know the the people at uh, Muslimish is uh, Muslimish is um, a, a community that you know I've, I've been very involved with, and, and a lot of my friends are in there, and, and they're doing some great things. They held their, I think, their first conference in New York in June, and uh, I was there and I spoke at it. Uh, then uh, there's ex-Muslims of uh, North America, which is Mohammed Sayed and Sarah Hader. Um, they they run that. Um, I think that what they're doing that's really good is they're putting a face to this. They're brave enough to come out and, uh, you know, not be anonymous and, you know, just speak openly and talk about the ideas and, uh, you know, counter misconceptions wherever they're seen in a very intelligent way. Um, and I think, you know, you saw Mohammed and Sarah's uh, article um, in response to Reza Aslan. Yes. Um, after the whole, you know, the Bill Maher episode with Sam Harris and uh, with uh, Ben Affleck and so on. So, so they're, they ripped him They're apart, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and uh, yeah, they did, and and they did it really well. They sourced everything very well, and it was it was just a beautifully done article. Um, so I mean, they're they're doing that, and that's a very good thing. Um, I, I one of the things I I don't think they're doing. I think they're doing you know the best that they possibly can. Uh, one of the issues is that all of us uh, we get messages from people who are in trouble in uh, some of the Muslim majority countries, uh, just, you know, atheists and secularists and, and just even liberals who are, who are not even, you know, avowed atheists or anything. Uh, and, and, they're, and there's very little we can do to help them. So I think that with time, you know, it would be great to, you know, see uh, sort of more uh, people in the legal profession involved in this who can, who can kind of help um some of these people get out of those countries in a way. Um, and there are a I couple of programs. Help. I know the Center for Inquiry uh, does a thing um, where they are helping relocate Muslims when that's possible in other countries. Right. Yeah, they are. And I, I think that there's a great guy, Michael Dodora, is uh, yeah. involved in that. He's actually, uh, he's at the UN now, and I, I, he's doing a fantastic job. And I, I, I hopefully with time, we're going to have uh, more of an effort to have that done. And this is where, you know, a lot of the, the whole immigration topic that's big right now, and, uh, you know, with this whole thing with Donald Trump again, um, is, you know, that's, they're always talking about how many terrorists can come in. But, but the problem is that there's a lot of people, uh, you know, people like myself, I'm an immigrant. Fethul uh, al-Mathar is a refugee. Ayan Hirsi Ali. A lot of these people wouldn't be here if uh, any policy, any blanket bans on, on Muslims, for instance, were were implemented. So, uh, do we, you know, we have to find a way to uh, get, you know, to, to sort of highlight these voices because they can't. You're, you're not going to know about them there. Over there, they're either not going to speak up, or if they speak up, you know, they're, they're they'll be killed or they're going to be jailed before you even hear of anything. 
uh, with very rare exceptions. So the, the only time they can actually speak is when they do come over here and they, they feel more secure. So um, that's an effort that I think that, uh, I guess, not just these ex-Muslim groups, but I, I think a lot of everyone in general can, can sort of help with. I completely agree. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Ali A. Rizvi, uh, his new book is called The Atheist Muslim, and it is out soon. All right. Thank you very much for having me. Thank, thank you. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. This episode was taped at Cinnamon Sound Studios in Aurora, Illinois, and the music was written and performed by Brad Chagdis. If you like what you're hearing, please consider making a contribution at Patreon.com slash Hemant. That's He-Man T. We appreciate your support. I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blumke. We hope you'll join us next time.